All right, everybody. Today is going to be a special podcast episode, and I have asked my good friend, Ralph Reed, to come on the podcast. Ralph, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Good to be with you. It's so great to have you here. Ralph, and if you guys, uh, you guys might know the name Ralph Reed, started way back, way back, Ralph. Way back. <laughs> Thanks, John. You're off to a great start. Off to a great start. <laughs> Ralph has been involved in politics. When, when people want to understand, I think, an accurate perspective from a Christian perspective on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, and a lot of articles, journalism, you know what? They asked Ralph to come in. And here's how Ralph and I met. It was in 2008. I started a group here in Colorado called the Colorado Rough Riders. And what I wanted to do was get conservative leaders involved in politics. So I invited a group of about 20 CEOs and we brought in a speaker, Ralph. I think our first guy was uh, William Federer, if you remember him. Mm -hmm. So what we wanted to do is start and just say, hey, what is, if we actually look at some of the founding principles, things that are part of our constitution, both federal and all of the state constitutions, what are things that we need to know of as business leaders to be bringing in? Because I got it. People don't realize how much things that happen in the legislature affect our business, our personal lives and everything. There's actually a huge piece there. And what is our role as believers in the entire political process? And that's part about what we're going to be talking about today. Well, this group quickly grew to 400 CEOs meeting every single month. One of the people I brought in was Foster Freeze, if some of you guys might know his name, but Foster introduced me to Ralph. Now, here's what happened is we were so frustrated looking at some of the things that were being passed here in Colorado that were affecting our education, our taxes, our governance, our ability to just live our lives and build our businesses the way that we wanted to. And a group of about eight of us got together and said, you know what? These politicians are not the answer. They are not going to fix it. How do we get involved? as business owners from a kingdom perspective. And it was during that period of time, we literally couldn't figure it out. And Foster says, you need to talk to Ralph. He started the Christian Coalition back in the early 90s. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that was. It became a national movement. But now, Ralph, you've started the Faith and Freedom Coalition, and you shared with me your vision and what you're doing. And we started the Colorado Faith and Freedom Coalition with Ralph's guidance. Remember, we brought on Jim Paff, who I know is probably listening to this. And I think that first year in 2000, leading into that 2010 election, like from a complete standstill, I think we made something like 6 million voter contacts. I can't remember what it was, but it was like a God only thing. Some money came in that blew us away, but we're at another inflection point, everybody. And I think for all of us to really understand what is going on. So Ralph just wrote a book and I shared this with a good friend of mine who is not a fan of Trump. And as he started reading the book in the introduction, Ralph, he goes, can I have that copy? I really want to understand what Ralph has to say. The book is for God and country, the Christian case for Trump. And the reason that I asked Ralph to come on today is to really understand what is our role. Everybody out there, we're all, you know, as followers of Christ, what is our role in politics, in government? And how do we, not our own opinion, but how do we actually bring things back to Scripture to inform what God wants us to do, if that makes sense? So with that, Ralph, I'd love for you to even just maybe go back a little bit 
and just talk about your journey. So people can kind of, who might not know you or familiar with you a little bit about, you know, what's formed you and what's led you to doing what you're doing today. Well, you'll like this part, John. I'll start with the fact that I grew up as a Navy brat. My dad was a flight surgeon who served on the USS Constellation. He was at the Gulf of Tonkin. And Charles Albert Alvarez, who was a friend of his on the Constellation, was shot down on August 8, 1964. He was the first POW taken in the Vietnam conflict. So I was born in Portsmouth. My dad was then stationed in Norfolk. My brother was born in San Diego. We were all born at Navy bases. Wow, that's a Navy family. I like it. Oh, yeah, big time. And I, you know, it's why I took an instant liking to you, because any <laughs> naval aviator, man, I got to tell you, you grew up in the Navy, and those guys who got fired off aircraft carriers, you know, in the 60s, before you had a lot of the technology you have now, there was no stealth back then, man. When you came in low, those were some heroes. They were incredible people. And most Americans do not have a full appreciation for how much character and love of country there is out there in the military. So as a result of that, I can still remember walking across the San Diego Navy Yard towards my dad's ship. And my mother pointed at the ship and said, that's your father's boat. And I was probably, I don't know, three years old, maybe. I'm guessing three or four. And I remember looking up at that aircraft carrier. Now, keep in mind, I'm about, you know, I don't know, two or three feet tall. And I literally thought that that was my dad's boat. I didn't think that it was like the U.S. government's boat. And he was. That's daddy's boat. You were, you were impressed, weren't you? <laughs> yeah. Wow. My dad is something big. He's important. But what it did was it instilled in me, and this is not unique to me, there was a great book written back in the 80s, early 90s about military brats. I'm married to an army brat. My wife, Joanne, her father also served in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. What happens is you begin to see your family and therefore yourself as part of a cause larger than yourself. And you come to associate living life to its fullest with serving something bigger than you. And so as I was growing up and I, my family was Republican, I got interested in politics. I made a decision myself. It was my own decision to be a conservative. And at that time, it was Ronald Reagan. I co-chaired his youth effort. I was chairman of the College Republicans at the University of Georgia. I got involved in the youth effort for Reagan, but I didn't know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So up until that point, the cause that I was serving was a political cause, but it didn't really satisfy. It didn't really fill what Pascal called the God-shaped vacuum that is inside of each of us that only he can fill. And long story short, I got to know other Christian young people, primarily, frankly, as a result of my political engagement, which I think is an important parenthetical lesson for us. You know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, you don't really want to be political because then people associate your faith with a particular party. But think about somebody like me. If there hadn't been believers 
who love the Lord, who were involved, I would have never been exposed to their faith. And I saw in them a peace that, you know, I now understand surpasses all understanding. I didn't know that Mm -hmm. then. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that if I didn't win the election, it was the end of the world to me. But they seemed... Where was that coming from? Like, I mean, you know, as you were leading into, you think, the relationships and friendships with believers... Yeah. You know, in that moment, what was kind of driving your, you know, focusing your energy on some of these other issues before you coupled that with your faith? Well, I think honestly, at the time that I sort of was coming of age and was part of a generation that got excited about Reagan, what really drove me was watching the the stagflation, you know, the economy flat on its back. You know, the highest interest rates since the Civil War, the highest inflation since World War II, hostages in Iran and America apparently powerless to do anything about it. I think there was a general feeling, at least on the right at that time, that we were losing the Cold War, that the Soviets were on offense. You saw them moving into El Salvador and Nicaragua and, you know, the communist victory in Yemen and Cuba was acting as a base for all of Latin America. It felt like the United States was on defense and the Soviets were on offense. So what was driving me at that time, and it was really personified by Reagan, was this feeling that we needed an American renaissance. We needed an economic and a national security reboot. And that was kind of my cause. That's the cause I was serving. Well, and I think that's such a noble cause, because if you actually go back and during that period of time, the late 70s, you know, when Jimmy Carter's wearing his sweater and the White House and oil prices and everything else you mentioned, if you actually go back and look at the world press at the time, everybody felt like the age of America was over. Yeah. As a superpower, like our ability to influence things in a positive way was coming to an end. And also, you know, something else to bring up, too, it's not only about economic and uh, a lot of the conditions too. If you look over the last 20 years and you look at the efforts of just going around globally and spreading the gospel into unchurched people groups, people that don't know the Lord, over 85% of those efforts since Ralph got involved after Reagan got there has come from the U.S. I mean, when you talk about a city on a hill, a nation on a hill, I don't think anything defines that better than this country, which is unique. It's the only country that's become a superpower that was actually founded as one nation under God. There's some things in our roots and in our founding that I think a lot of people might have even lost sight of, Ralph. Yeah, I think so. And so as a result of all that political engagement, that was kind of my promised land, was making all that happen politically. But spiritually, honestly, John, I was lost. Mm -hmm. I had been raised in a Methodist home. My father was, you know, was the chairman of the board of the elders at the church, and my mother was the head of the Methodist youth group, and my pastor's son was my best friend. So I grew up in the church, but I didn't know Jesus. He was not my personal savior. I was serving something else, which was a political agenda. But through a combination of events and my own spiritual yearnings that I think 
I owe to the prayers of a lot of people, including my parents and a very godly grandmother. I came to the Lord in September of 1983, and my conversion was very dramatic. It changed my life. And at that point, even though I have remained in the political fray and have remained a political actor, the things that motivate me and the things that I'm trying to accomplish change pretty significantly at that point. So that was 1983. So you joined the, you get in, you have this conversion, but 1989, you started the Christian Coalition, which is how a lot of people know you. Could you just share with us kind of what the vision behind that was and what it became? Because I know that informs a lot about what you're doing today. Well, uh, I'll tell the quick story. I had actually, after I came to Christ, I had actually kind of got stepped back from politics. I had made a decision to get a doctorate in American history at Emory University. I got married during this period. I was going to be a college professor. That's what I was going to do. I was in the final year of that program, and I was writing my doctoral dissertation when I went to George H.W. Bush's inaugural in January of 1989. And at that inaugural festivities, I attended a youth event and was coincidentally seated next to Pat Robertson. And I figured he had, of course, just run for president, you know, did quite well for a first-time candidate, won five state caucuses, you know, made a real difference in moving a lot of Christians into the civic arena, but obviously didn't win. And at at this youth event, he shared with me, he said, nobody knows this yet, but... Jerry Falwell's getting ready to close the moral majority and I'm going to start the next big thing. And I'd never met him before in my life, figured I'd never see him again. So I proceeded to spend (laughs) most of the dinner telling him everything he had done wrong running for president. (laughs) Well done. Yeah. You know, what the heck? So I, I just said, Hey, you know, not you personally, but some of your supporters, you know, they purged people out of party organizations. That was a mistake. You got to build coalitions. You got to build bridges. It's about the politics of addition, not the politics of subtraction. And at the end of the dinner, he said, come here, I want to talk to you. And we walked into the banquet kitchen at this hotel in Washington, D.C. And he said, look, I'm going to start this thing. I want you to come and work for me. You know, you sound like you understand the grassroots. And I said, well, I can't. He said, well, why not? I said, because I'm getting a PhD. And he said, well, send me a memo on what you think I ought to do, even if you can't come work for me. So I went back to the little apartment where my wife and I lived, and I wrote this about a nine to 11 page memo. And John, as I wrote that memo, I started to get excited. And basically what the memo said was, Christians represent And you could debate the number, but it's somewhere between 30 and 45 million voters. At the time, the electorate was about 100 million voters. Today, it's about 130 million. So you're talking, you know, 30 to 45 million voters out of an electorate of 100 million are conservative Bible-believing Christians. And I said, but their influence is inversely proportional to their numbers. It's possible if they're organized correctly to change that. That became the Christian coalition. 
I ultimately, as we all know, I did end up going to work for Pat and I never ended up in the classroom. So I didn't waste four years getting a doctorate, but I ended up organizing the Christian Coalition. And by the mid 90s, it was one of the most influential and effective public policy organizations in the country. Yeah. So here's what I'd love for you to share. You know, people out there listening right now who are looking at the landscape, they're looking at politicians. What is our role as Christians in the political process? Because I think a lot of times, you know, we have so much opinion that's given to us just with the media is just nuts. Really, I'd love for you to share from scripture. How do we really need to think about our role out here in America as citizens right now? I think the best way to think about it is we are dual citizens. We have two citizenships. One is in the kingdom of God that is both here today and has not yet fully come. And that's our first and primary citizenship. And with that citizenship come certain responsibilities and obligations and disciplines to pray daily, to read scripture daily, to fellowship together, to tithe and contribute. There are certain spiritual disciplines and obligations that are connected to that citizenship. At the same time, we have an earthly citizenship. And for us, that citizenship is in the United States of America. And we are called upon as children of God to recognize that we are both simultaneously and that we are to exercise both those citizenships in a muscular and a robust fashion. So essentially we have two passports. And in terms of our earthly citizenship as citizens of the United States, we have certain rights and responsibilities that we believe are God-given. The right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of assembly, the right to freedom of religion, And we also have certain obligations to be informed, to be educated, to be registered to vote, to pay taxes. And the point is, the way to think about it is the same way the Apostle Paul thought about his Roman citizenship. You know, so you have to remember that if you read the New Testament, and especially the book of Acts, Mm -hmm. it was very unusual for a Jew in ancient Judea and Samaria to be a Roman citizen. Remember, Rome was occupying ancient Israel. They were subjugating the Jews. They were an occupied and oppressed people. And yet within that brutal occupation by the most powerful nation in the world at that time, Paul was actually a Roman citizen. And so in the 22nd chapter of Acts, where he's arrested in Jerusalem for sparking a riot by preaching the gospel, the Roman soldiers attempt to flog him and examine him by scourging. And he turns around to the commander of the centurions and he says, is it legal for you to do this to a Roman citizen? They immediately untie him. They protect him. They keep those who were committed to killing him from doing so. And ultimately he appeals his case all the way to Caesar. And the Bible records later, John, that many members of Caesar's household came to faith in Jesus Christ 
because Paul was there appealing his case, the emperor. So the best way to think about our citizenship Mm. is we're called to be effective citizens, first of all, to witness to Jesus Christ. We're witnesses of his lordship. And many people get exposed because we're in the civic arena. The second way to think about it is we are here to build his kingdom here on earth until he returns. And so I believe that that means ensuring that as many godly men and women, people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, are in positions where they're serving other people as much as possible because that helps to build his kingdom. And thirdly, we're called to resist evil and advance moral goods in every way that we can. And so I think when it comes to you know, I'll, I guess we'll talk about that in the current context, but I think those are the three things, the three ways as believers in Christ and believers in the Bible, that's how we should be thinking about our citizenship. It's not primarily a function of partisanship. It's not primarily a function of some selfish policy agenda. And I would just make one last point about that. Remember that Jesus numbered among his disciples. Simon the Zealot, who was a member of a violent terrorist political party that was committed to the overthrow of the Roman Empire, and Matthew, who was a tax collector for the Roman Empire. He didn't do that by accident. He was making the point, I have two totally diametrically opposed political actors one committed to overthrowing the Romans, the other supporting them and collecting taxes for them, and they're both disciples of mine. He was above politics. The gospel is above politics. Jesus is not a member of any political party. And even though there were attempts by the Herodians and by the Sadducees and the Pharisees and different political factions to try and get him to become a political actor, he never did. Well, that's a beautiful way to think about it. And here's a question for you, right? So you said Jesus and the gospel are above politics. And you also said before, right, that in the heavenly kingdom, right, we have response, but in the earthly, you know, as a citizen here, right, we need to have a muscular and robust response. So how do you put those two together? What does a muscular and robust response look like, you know, as we bring that down to just our everyday lives in context of what you just said about, you know, Jesus not being political? Well, I think, first of all, it's important for us to say that, you know, Jesus is not a member of either political party and that there are believers that are a member of lots of different political factions and both major parties here in the United States. I've never questioned anybody's faith because they were a member of a different faction or political party than mine. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall if and when Simon the Zealot and Matthew, you know, discuss some of these issues, but that's not recorded. Yeah. We just know that when the Pharisees came to Christ to try and trip him up, and they asked him if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not, remember what they were asking him 
They were trying to get him to take sides politically. Should Jews voluntarily submit to the occupation of the Romans, which they believed denied them the right of self-determination on the land and in the nation that God had given them, and he didn't take sides. Now, having said that, I'm a conservative. I'm a Republican. I believe that on the issue of, for example, the sanctity of innocent human life, I believe very strongly that the pro-life position is the moral position. I think it is a moral good to protect innocent human life, and I think it is a grave moral evil to take life. So what I do in my citizenship is on that issue, on the issue of religious freedom and the right to share the gospel, I think there are attempts to deny us that right. That is not only our right under the First Amendment, it's not only our right under the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. John, I believe it's a God-given right. So I use my citizenship to defend that right, just like Paul defended his right to appeal to Caesar. And by the way, that's a right we don't even have. That was the most sacred right of a Roman citizen. Can you imagine if we had the right as an American citizen to say, I appeal my case to the president, and we had the ability to actually walk into the Oval Office and make our case. Now, Paul could have just allowed the people who were persecuting him to just execute him, put him on trial in Jerusalem in a kangaroo court, and let him be executed. But he didn't do that. Why? Because Paul recognized that his Roman citizenship was a gift from God, mm. and he was morally obligated to defend it. And so when he exercised that citizenship, he defended his rights, and the gospel went to the highest levels, including to the most powerful person on the planet. That's the best way for us to think about this. And, you know, we should do everything we can to use our citizenship to resist evil to advance good and to defend our rights. Well, I agree with that. You know, it made me think of when you were talking, when Joshua was at Jericho and all of a sudden there's an angel in front of him and he asked, he knew it was an angel, but he said, are you with us or against us? And the angel responded, neither. I'm here to represent the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I love what you just said, Ralph. It's, you know what, if we bring all these before the Lord, whether it's life, liberty, you know, all these God-given rights. And I think it's important for everybody out there listening to take, you know, what you're thinking about, the issues that are important to you, and bring it back to Scripture. What is God sharing with you? I, I agree with you. You know, in the last 30 years, I think there's been something like 60 million abortions here in this country. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some things that are happening that need to be fixed, right? God's presence back in this country as we lift up to heal our land so let me ask you this. So how do you think about, you know, you wrote this book for God and country, your case for Donald Trump. And I know there's, a, I mean, you watch him, right? There's a lot of people, right? There's, if you look at the policies that he has and who he is as a man, how did you think through this whole process? And what would you share with people out there that are trying to kind of get their head around, you know, how they support different people in politics? Well, I talk about it in the book. You know, I first got to know his daughter, Ivanka, 
My wife and I met Ivanka and Jared at a conference in Park City, Utah in early 2010. They were newlyweds. She was poised, intelligent, gracious, charming, beautiful inside and out, didn't put on airs, didn't come off as stuck up at all. And at the time, you know, I did not have a high opinion of her father. But I have two daughters like that, you know, beautiful, charming, gracious, intelligent. And I know I'm biased. They're my daughters. But I know (laughs) that daughters like that don't just happen. And they usually have to have a very good relationship with their father to turn out like incredible women like that. Maybe not always, but often. And so when I left that dinner, I said to my wife, I may have to change my opinion of Donald Trump because at the time my opinion of him was not high. You know, it was based on his public image. And about a year later, out of the blue, he cold called me. I mean, just called myself up and introduced himself. And I said, you know, look, if you're serious about running for president, and he said, I I am, I said, then you need to get to know the evangelicals. And he said, I want to do that. So I invited him to the Faith and Freedom Road to Majority Policy Conference that was taking place that June in D.C. He came. He was well-received, and he said, the next time you're in New York, come and see me, and I did. And you were pretty candid with him about your opinions of him, weren't you? Yeah. I'd love for you to share that story with everybody. Well, when he called me, I said, "Uh, look, you don't know me, and I don't know you. I didn't always have a high opinion of you, but I have to tell you, I met your daughter, Ivanka, And it sort of changed my view a little bit. And of course, at that moment, I had him at hello, you know, because I was telling him what an extraordinary young woman his daughter was. And she was then and she is now. And by the way, I've gotten to know Don Jr. and Eric really well, gotten to know Laura Trump really well. These are extraordinary young people and they love their dad. And so Donald Trump and I, I have to be honest with you, John, I didn't expect to like him, but I did. I liked him from the very beginning. He was smart. He knew everybody. He was not what I expected him to be. And it was the funniest thing because when I invited him to that Faith and Freedom Conference, which you were at. I was. Because you were then the head of the Colorado Faith and Freedom Organization. He said, what are the days? And I told him, and he said, what would be the best day for me to be there? And I told him, and he said, what time? And I said, well, probably an evening slot. That'll be the most attendance. And he said, okay, I just put it on my calendar. I'll be there. What did that tell you about him? That's not a normal political process, is it? In my career, I'm used to going through handlers and political advisors and schedulers and strap hangers and hangers-ons. And here I was talking to Donald Trump. I wrote it on my calendar. I'll see you then. And I hung up the phone and I remember I wrote this in the book. I said, the last time I had seen a business tycoon or business figure like that, sort of grabbed the wheel of his own campaign was Ross Perot in 1992. And that didn't end very well. 
But it started well until he (laughs) yanked the wheel over into the ditch. It did. You're right. It did start very well. And in some ways, Perot was a precursor of Trump. But again, this is what I get back to. And, you know, you can like or not like Donald Trump. You can agree or disagree with his politics or his policies. But I'm just telling you, this was is not my first rodeo. I'm working on my 11th presidential campaign. And if it's at a national Republican level in the last 30 years, I knew him personally. He's very smart. The people who say he's not a true conservative, in my experience, that is not true. He does care about the faith community. He thinks that the Christian community has an important and vital role to play, and he wants them to have an effective and strong voice in society. But he was also very smart. I mean, Perot tried to run outside the parties as an independent. He got 20% of the vote, and he came with nothing to show for it, not one member of Congress. Trump was smart enough to know, if I'm going to win, I got to operate inside one of the parties. And I say in the book that he walked in, not only having never held elective office, he walked in having never run for office, and he took over a major political party in the space of a year, like he was buying a golf course out of bankruptcy. (laughs) And again, whether you like him or not- I think bankruptcy describes it aptly. He is one of the most interesting historical figures of recent times. No one had ever done that before in American history without being a war hero like Ulysses S. Grant was. I mean, even Herbert Hoover, who had never held elective office, had held high appointive office, as had William Howard Taft. So this was unusual, and I think he's a very impressive political figure. So what I'm hearing you saying, having been involved with 11 presidential campaigns, getting to know candidates behind the scenes, see how they make decisions, who their team is, over 30 years, you have thrown all in behind President Trump. And I know you are, you know, you have so many deep roots and friends and influence in the faith community. When people come to you from the Christian community and they just really have a hard time with either some of the things he does or says, what are the conversations you have with people? Well, what I say to them is, you know, first of all, I'm not asking them to agree with everything that Donald Trump says or does. You know, he says or does some things that I wish he wouldn't, including on his Twitter feed. And by the way, that's going to be true of whoever you support. If you're looking for someone that you agree with 100% of the time, the only person that's ever going to be true of is the one looking back at you in the mirror. And even then, you're going to make mistakes. Okay, so in my experience, I live by the Ronald Reagan rule. Somebody that I disagree with 20% of the time is not a 20% enemy, they're an 80% friend. And from the minute I met Donald Trump, John, that was how I treated him. Not that I agreed with him on everything, not that I liked everything he said or did, but he was an 80% friend. And frankly, I think he's about a 95% friend. And what I say to them is, 
if you look at the life issue alone, what he's done to defund Planned Parenthood, to reinstitute the Mexico City policy and expand it so that your tax dollars aren't being used to promote and perform abortions in overseas programs through the UN and other international organizations. The first president to speak to the March for Life. The president who has eliminated the conscience mandates under Obamacare that forced believers to pay for medical services and medication that induced abortion. He's the most pro-life president we've ever seen, and we've had some great ones. Secondly, on the issue of religious liberty, whether it's the conscience mandates or personally lobbying Turkey's leader Erdogan to free Andrew Brunson, an evangelical pastor who was imprisoned because he was sharing the gospel in Turkey. The other things that he's done to defend religious freedom. I'll give you just one other example. The, the yeah. Trump administration recently went into court. The case was resolved this year by the Supreme Court, defending the right of churches and Christian schools to hire and fire who they wanted to as teachers or counselors. The Obama administration, if you can believe it, went into court and argued a case that came out of Seattle, Washington, arguing that a church shouldn't be able to hire and fire the teachers that they wanted to based on their professions of faith. The Solicitor General of the United States under Obama argued that the Church of Jesus Christ didn't have that right. Now, fortunately, they lost that case nine to nothing. Every liberal justice voted against him. But under the previous administration of which Joe Biden was number two in charge, when the Little Sisters of the Poor finally won their case in just this last session of the Supreme Court, and they overturned the Obama conscience regulations that required a order of celibate nuns who cares for the poor to provide medical services to the nuns that included abortion-inducing medication. When they finally won that case with the assistance of the Trump administration, Joe Biden publicly said on that day that if he was elected president, he would reimpose those regulations. And he and Obama were the ones who dragged the Little Sisters of the Poor into federal court and threatened them with up to $70 million in fines. Last issue, the state of Israel. I believe that standing with Israel is a biblical mandate. And I believe that the nations who bless Israel will be blessed and the nations that curse and undermine Israel will be cursed. And when Donald Trump recognized Jerusalem as the eternal indivisible capital of Israel, when he relocated our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, when he recognized Israeli sovereignty over Judea, Samaria, and the Golan Heights, I believe it is fair to say he's the most pro-Israel president we've ever had. And again, we've had some great ones. I believe these are moral issues. And I think that supporting his administration and his policies, we haven't been just been vindicated by doing that because it was the politically right thing to do we've been vindicated because it was the morally right thing to do. And the last issue I'll mention is judges. 
Mm-hmm. He said that he would appoint originalists who would respect the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. He said he would appoint pro-life judges. And he's kept that promise, John, not once with Neil Gorsuch, not twice with Brett Kavanaugh, but now three times with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, a towering intellect, a brilliant mind, one of the most respected jurists in the country today, and he's kept it over 200 times with 54 appellate court judges and those underneath, and rightly or wrongly, almost every one of these moral issues, John, and I think to some extent it shouldn't be this way, but it is for now, it's resolved by the Supreme Court. Ultimately, whether it's little sisters of the poor, the right to worship God, the right to life, all these are decided by the Supreme Court. And if Hillary Clinton or now Joe Biden was appointing those judges, they'd be ruling in ways that I believe advanced grave moral evils. That's what I say to my friends. And I think it's a compelling argument. Well, I think so too. And if you look at, you know, it's interesting. Somebody asked me recently, who has more influence in our culture right now, the entire evangelical movement and Catholic church or some of these large social media companies? And I think the answer is probably pretty obvious to everybody listening. And it's time for us to reclaim our influence and our presence. You know what? And I would say that the brand as a Christian being called a Christian is damaged because a lot of us have not gone out there and loved others, right? The way we've, you know, love ourselves and love the father first. And when we go out and act in boldness, like Christ did in the temple, but also with love. And I love what you shared because I also believe that people need to make their own decisions, but the president reflects our values, reflects our beliefs. Maybe he's more of kind of like Cyrus in the Old Testament, or I don't know, but I think you're right. But back to your point, people don't, I don't think, understand how important the court has been. If you actually look at why, I think a mechanism of why we've lost so much influence is a lot of cases that were decided in the late 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Big time. People are not aware that this fight with Amy Coney Barrett, the reason that there's been such a reaction, it's an existential threat to the agenda that I believe, and I this is not hyperbole, that the forces that are against, let's say, a kingdom agenda have very much in play right now. And they know yeah. that this could be a huge constraint for them to carrying out their plans. Because, you know, there's so many amazing people out there. When we get into huge extremes and absolutes, and I love that you didn't go there at all, because it's I know that's not, you know, talking about, you know, people being good and evil, right? Hey, if I 60% agree with somebody, you know what? They're not an enemy. They're 60% my friend. And guess what? What if I can grow that 60 to 70 or 80 or 90? And that's something else that you do. Ralph, I just want to compliment you on. I've seen you have discussions with people who vehemently disagree with you and you do it in such, you stand for your position, but you do it in such a civil and respectful and loving way. And it's such a great example for folks. So everybody out there, this book goes through in such a great way as a way to educate yourself on how to think about not only politics, but Donald Trump, but the importance of really where we are in history right now. 
called Forgotten Country, The Christian Case for Trump. We don't normally cover politics on this podcast, Ralph, and everybody out there listening. The reason that I really wanted Ralph on, and thank you for coming, was I really think this is so important right now. I think we are a close distance away from this country losing its influence and impact for the kingdom in the world. I really do believe that this is a very stark choice in history. And with that, Ralph, I'd love for just any final thoughts you have. Yeah, I would just say, you know, to those who may be listening, who agree with the points I've made, or to those who don't, I would urge you to check the book out. I didn't really write the book primarily as a defense of Donald Trump, although I happily do that, and I have today on this podcast. I wrote the book primarily as a defense of the faith community and as a defense of serious, devoted, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians and their faithful Roman Catholic allies who approached this dilemma, and I frame it in the book as a dilemma, backing someone and supporting someone who is a less than perfect vehicle when confronted with an alternative that in many ways is morally unacceptable, including abortion on demand, taxpayer-funded abortion, restrictions on religious freedom, undermining the state of Israel, and people being appointed to the courts that will seek to deny our rights as both Christians and Americans. And I frame it as that kind of a choice. And I think they prayed about it. They wrestled with it. And some people have accused them of being hypocrites. They've been called every name in the book. They've been accused of being spiritual frauds. They've been accused of people who are more interested in partisan politics than they are in the gospel. And John, I knew that none of that was true. If you actually go back and look at 2016, two-thirds of self-identified evangelicals voted for somebody other than Donald Trump in the primaries. Most Ted Cruz, some Marco Rubio, Mike Huckabee, somebody else. But when they were confronted with a binary choice, I think they made the right choice. It was a difficult choice. And I go through the reasons why. So I hope people will check the book out. I think we have a similar, if even a starker choice, Mm -hmm. in many ways a starker choice. Because Joe Biden, for most of his career, supported the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits the use of taxpayer money to pay for elective abortions on demand under the Medicaid program. He took that position for 42 years. Today, because of the pressure of the organized left in his party, within 48 hours of getting into this race, he shed a position he'd held for more than four decades and now supports abortion on demand, including up to the moment of birth, paid for with tax dollars, as an entitlement under a government-run healthcare plan. I can't support that. I won't support that. I think most Christians won't support that. So I hope people will pick up the book and check it out. And everybody listening, I think it's time for us also to get out of the stands, get on the field, and be part of this. Make a difference. And I really want to encourage everybody out there is to go to the Faith and Freedom Coalition. The work you're doing, Ralph, is amazing. It's ffcoalition.com. 
You guys can volunteer, you can get trained, you can help make voter contacts. If you want to right now get involved and do something out of your house, sitting at your desk, social distance with your mask on, it doesn't matter. You can right now jump into Faith and Freedom Coalition. You can donate. Let me ask you a question. Could you use some volunteers and some donations? Ralph did not ask me to say this. I'm saying this because I think it's so important. Uh, we sure can. We've got about a thousand full-time staff and volunteers knocking on doors right now in 21 states, John. And our voter education program's budget is $45 million. So yeah, we could use contributions and we can use volunteers. We're knocking on about a hundred thousand doors a day and we're sending out hundreds of thousands of text messages and phone calls every day right now. And you know what, everybody listening to, I believe it's time for us to get engaged in the process. If you're listening and you're a pastor, or if you're listening and you have a good relationship with your pastor and you want to understand what you can do, you know, that works for you and your congregation, you can go to Faith and Freedom Coalition and really educate yourself on what you can do, how you can make an impact and do it in a way that is in alignment with what's also good for your church too. So you guys have created some great resources for organizations, nonprofits, for individuals. And Ralph, I am so appreciative and thankful for who you are, your influence you've had in my life. I had an accident nine years ago and Ralph was here all the way through and you are awesome. And I really appreciate you just coming on and sharing from the heart and helping us to think about things, I think, from a kingdom perspective. John, thanks a lot. You're a dear friend, and uh, we prayed fervently for you through your accident. You're a walking miracle, and I value and cherish your brotherhood in Christ and your friendship, and I'm thrilled by the platform that he's given you and the way you're using it. Thanks, Ralph. Well, keep knocking them alive out there, my friend, and uh, we're all in this with you. Thanks. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.